1: Greetings and welcome to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel. And today I have the great pleasure of talking with Max Krocmaul of Texas Christian University. His book, Blue Texas, The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era. This is a very highly detailed, great uh, history book about how multiple different people, brown people, white people, black people all came together in a coalition to make Texas blue, something you don't necessarily think about Texas being right now. And then Max also talks about ways that uh, Texas can return uh, to be blue. And so I think you really enjoy this interview, so uh, pull up and have a listen. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, the African-American studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I have the great pleasure of being here today with Associate Professor of History at Texas Christian University, Max Crockmall. How are you doing today, Max?
0: I'm doing all right. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy summer teaching schedule to have an interview with us on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. And the book we're going to be talking with Max about today is his book from our friends at the University of North Carolina Press. And it's called Blue Texas, The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era, Blue Texas, and both of us are in Texas right now, right? We may not be from Texas, but we got here as quickly as they could. Is that what they say, Max?
0: (laughs) Something like that.
1: Yeah, I've heard that uh, many times. And so I'm originally from North Carolina. You are a Duke man. I'm a Tar Heel, but we'll get along as best we can during this podcast. Sounds good. I don't think we'll have any problem. I interviewed Dr. Britt Russett as well, who's also a Duke person, so... I don't think that's going to be any problem. So, Max, maybe tell um, our audience a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. You know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, where you're from, your your academic background and why you are interested in writing about this topic of Blue Texas. Sure. Uh,
0: well, so I'm originally from Reno, Nevada. Okay. Uh, I'm from a family with uh, longstanding ties to the labor movement and to uh-huh. political activism right. in both the old left and the new. Uh, and I eventually went to college at, at UC Santa Cruz okay. in California, um, and after that went and worked in the labor movement. I was a union organizer. Wow. Okay. Uh, and uh, and I had some great mentors at, at Santa Cruz that that helped me see sort of how ideas and stories go together with practical on the ground organizing. Right. Um And they introduced me to some wonderful books uh, that were about that nuts and bolts organizing process.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And. And so anyway, I was working as a union organizer, and I thought about how we just needed better stories, better examples about how unions and civil rights movements had intersected. Ah. How, do, how, can these, how do these movements support each other? Who are the people who build those bridges? Right. Where do positions come from? Um, you know what, what else is going on here? And, and so that ultimately led me to apply to go to grad school. Uh, where I ended up at Duke and, and I worked with Bill Chafe and a number okay, of great right. um, Charles Payne for a little while and of course I'd read his book and um, and I read Bob Korsad's book, uh, Civil Rights yeah. uh, and, and that got me thinking a lot about those connections um, but but what irked me was that so much of what's written about civil rights is, is done through one or another binary formulation. Okay. It's, either, it's either black and white or it's Anglo and Mexican if we're reading books about the Chicano movement in Mm -hmm. the Southwest. And having lived in California and Nevada and and worked in the labor movement, I thought that that those frameworks didn't really describe the the world I was living in and working in and trying to organize, that we needed truly multiracial studies to think about how does coalition building work between labor and community groups and civil rights groups, uh, and and to do that in a multiracial, multiethnic context. So that led... Ultimately, to studying Texas and writing, writing uh, my dissertation about Texas mm-hmm. and um, and then, uh, you know, digging in and ultimately this book. Right. Right. But, you know, I, I, I um, so yeah, I, it, it was a great challenge because I had to learn African-American history mm-hmm. and I had to learn Chicano history and I had to learn labor history and and see where they fit together. Um, and then ultimately, I had to, you know, come and do the research. And that always takes you in surprising directions.
1: (laughs) Yes. You never know where you're going to end up versus where you start. (laughs) Absolutely. So thank you for sharing a little bit about your background there, Max. And I think you're definitely the right man for the job to to look at, you know, bringing, you know, and these different movements together and showing, you know, the complexity. And it's not just about Anglo, you know, Chicano. Or, you know or, or black brown or you know white or whatever it was a uh, a lot of different people coming together um right. so and you know i know that you, you know you're only on your, your book it said you're an assistant professor but now you're an associate professor but i know you yeah. have some some other titles there as well you, you want to talk with the audience about that
0: well sure so uh, along with the book i i direct a, a large oral history project a oh. collaborative project called civil rights and black and brown ah. and uh i'm partnering with a number of colleagues and we've we got some support from NEH and other groups, and we're able to to bring a bunch of grad students on to help us go out and do interviews around the state. Awesome! And, uh, we have a website up now. It's uh, crbb.tcu.edu. Okay. I, I also direct our our brand new program here on comparative race and ethnic studies. We have
1: we have a new major at TCU. Excellent. Uh,
0: and actually, you know, study that. So, all right,
1: congratulations on that. Max. Thank you. That's, that's, that sounds great. And at the, Towards the end of the podcast, I'll, I, I'll try to remind you, you know, let's let's put that website out there again. You know, yeah. some people, if, you know, interested in participating in your oral history project or, you know, viewing some of the or viewing or listening to oral history. Uh, some of the things that you all have done that, because I know uh, members of our, our listening audience here on New Books and African-American Studies, we love oral history. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, definitely, I want them to get involved and learn more about the work you're doing here in Texas, in Fort Worth, there at Texas Christian University. Mm -hmm. So, Blue Texas. Wow. When people think about Texas, they're generally not, unless they're going back to LBJ era or uh, you know, uh, back back a little bit further there, they're not generally thinking blue. They're thinking uh, Ted Cruz and uh, and and and, and Rick Perry a little bit, right?
0: Sure. I mean, that's that's. uh kind of the tease for the book, right? It's not a place just of cowboy conservatism, but it's a much more diverse place. And I think, you know, that's true all across America. These so-called red states are are full of many um, people who are politically progressive of all different persuasions. Um, And in Texas, I actually think that the progressives are the numerical majority, Mm -hmm. but there's an organizing problem involved. Mm -hmm. And and that's one way that this book, I hope, will be really helpful, is to think about the, the process of organizing, the process of coalition building, and hopefully, um, you know, Democrats and other other activists today can learn some lessons from that and, and apply them to the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I know you're an oral history man, uh, you know, Max, because you, you, you mentioned your work there in, you know, in oral history. But can you maybe, you know, talk with a little bit about the type of research methods that you use in order to complete your dissertation and, you know, own into this book? And, you know, and kind of maybe give our audience an idea of how long it took you to complete this project.
0: Yeah, uh, sure. Well, it was a, a basically a ten-year project. Wow. And uh, you know, oral history was foundational to it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I at UC Santa Cruz, I got to work with Paul Ortiz, who was a okay,
1: right.
0: historian. Uh And then I went to go work with his mentor, Bill Chafe, who's mm-hmm. a, a leading oral historian, and, and Larry Goodwin, and others, Bob Corsett. Um, and, and and so it was really foundational to my practice of history. Uh, that that. You know, most people throughout human history have not left records behind. Right. <laughs> if we want to if we want to kind of tell the people's story, if we want to democratize the story, um, we need to be going out and creating these new sources and, and, and helping people to get their stories recorded and put in archives. And if they have, you know, collections of papers in their attic or their basement or their desk drawer to making sure those see the light of day and get preserved of as course. well. Um, so, you know, I really did start the project in two ways, which was to go out and. And find people to interview and kind of work through a couple contacts that I had Mm -hmm. and then dig into the archives and see where those those took me and um, so I very extensively use the the uh, archives the Texas labor archives Mm -hmm. at UT uh, up here in the DFW area and it's this wonderful resource that George Green has collected over Mm -hmm. over 50 years now and uh, and others and um, it held the held the papers of the Texas AFL CIO and Mm -hmm. it also held a bunch of oral history interviews that George and others had conducted in the early seventies with union leaders and, and, um, and they, some of them African American, some of them Mexican American, most of them white. Um, but they, I started digging into those stories to see who they talked about, who kept popping up, uh, and then, and then followed those leads. So one of the people that George interviewed was Moses Leroy or Leroy, who is a major character in the book. Mm -hmm. He's a, uh, he's from Houston. He's, um, or he you know he made his his name in Houston sure sure uh, and he's an African American trade unionist and civil rights activist so i followed him and and you know he has a small collection of papers that somehow got preserved at the at the Houston uh Metropolitan Research Center downtown mm-hmm. public library and uh and so i looked at that and then i went and found everything else i could about him <laughs> and, and he mentions and and then i did you know i did the same thing for a bunch of other people uh yeah. Eventually went to San Antonio to the public library and to the UTSA libraries that, that used to be at the Institute of Texts and Cultures. Okay. Uh, and you just kind of keep following the paper trail. Right. And as you do that, you see, oh, I got to go interview somebody. And, and then right. every time you interview someone, you say, who else should I talk to? Right. And it just leads you from A all the way to Z. And, and I'll, I'll say that methodologically, you know, I, I started as a union person. I was very interested in the work site. I wanted to think about sort of these small moments of interaction mm-hmm. between different groups. And. Um, you know what did it look like on the shop floor, you know which drinking fountain did Mexicans use right mm. like the Um But what I found that the sources pointed me toward was that the area in addition to work, the area where these different activists came together, was in the the arena of electoral politics right okay um, so that became a central piece of the book. Then the project became kind of looking at what's happening in the electoral arena and how's, how are those coalitions coming together, falling apart, coming together again? Mm-hmm. And and then how did each of the different groups get there? How did they organize their own constituencies, build their own bases? Where did they come from? You know, some were community organizers in the end, some were labor activists, some right. were political activists, some were out of civil rights groups. And, and so I just had to keep following them wherever they went.
1: Right. Follow the strings wherever that they take you. Right. Yeah. And, um, we're here with the author of Blue Texas, Max Crockmal. He is an associate professor of history at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth and his book is Blue Texas: The Making of a Multiracial Multiracial, not racial, racial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era, published by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press. And um looking at your cover here of the book, Max, it's a it's a great cover, it's a great image and it goes all the way around the book. Uh, can you maybe give us some background about uh this uh this cover of the book and maybe explain it a little a little bit for me?
0: Yeah, so this this cover actually comes from the end of the story, the epilogue even. All right. Uh, and this is from the march from of uh, farm workers from the Rio Grande Valley uh to Austin in 1960 okay. the year after Cesar Chavez leads the march uh from from Delano to Sacramento. Right. You know Uh, There's there's sort of an outpost of the Union gets built in South Texas and they march 400 miles in the summer Texas heat uh, to Austin. And that story is a a really important story for for many reasons. It helped to kick off the Chicano movement in Texas. Um, But it's usually told in those same kind of binary terms, right, as as a story about the Chicano movement. And what I had learned was that when they got to Austin, they were greeted by Ten thousand trade unionists, most of them white, mm-hmm. and a huge contingent of African Americans tied into the NAACP in Austin and and from East Texas, okay. uh, and and so anyway, the, one of the guys in the picture, the guy, the largest figure on the right, mm-hmm. and if you fold clap, uh, he's the one by the donkey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's that's actually George Lambert, who's a, oh. a unionist, uh, who I begin the whole book with in, in chapter one.
1: Right. <laughs> Usually I don't hear people say, the guy by the donkey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, his son pointed that out to me and said,
1: that's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The guy by the donkey. Usually I, we don't hear that on the New Books Network, on the African American <laughs> Studies channel. So that may be a first right there for you, Max. Point out, the guy by the donkey. But yeah, this is, this is a, a great cover. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it definitely represents your, 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 your work here. And, and if people don't know about how hot it is during the summer in, in Texas, uh, come down here one summer and you'll see. Uh, these are some some dedicated men and and, and, and women uh, fighting for the rights here to be out here in this in this sun and that donkey too. We got to give a shout out to that donkey as well for his or her work in the movement. All right. So mu- multi-racial and multi-creature, uh, <laughs> I guess too here, Max. We want to if we want to <laughs> take it there. Yeah. Thank you for you know for for sharing that and. Um, did you, um, did you choose the, uh, the image or was it chosen by the publishers? Or?
0: Yeah, I sent them a handful of them and, and this was, you know, the one that worked out for technical and other reasons, Right. but, and then it was a black and white image and they actually colorized it. Colorized, right. Yeah.
1: I, I, yeah. It looks great. Wow. Yeah. Right, so this is a colorized image as well. You know, I was wondering about that. I wasn't sure, but I was thinking maybe because of the sun, it made it kind of look that way. Um, but wow, yeah, they did a great job with that, Max. And was the title yours, Blue Texas, or was that something that someone at UNC Press came up with?
0: Uh, I came up with that somewhere in the revision process. Um okay. I guess when I was when I was on the fellowship doing the last of the the first draft. I guess
1: because we that's something that we talk about too on on, on our podcast channel a lot is that you know the you know, the writers sometimes don't always get to choose the titles or. Right. what's on the cover of the books or, you know, the images and some of those kind of things. You know, so those of you who are listening, you know, this is a case where Max had a lot of leeway here and, you know, had a lot of, you know, ability to make those choices. But you've heard, if you recall from some of our previous interviews, you know, it doesn't sometimes work that way. you know, um, so, you, know, don't
0: see um, you know, I had a wonderful editor at UNC and then they also, you know, they helped me with the maps and with the images and, you know, it was a great
1: experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, and, and it often is. And sometimes, you know, what, you know, what I was going to say is, you know, if you're a young writer or a person that's, you know, that's going into the academy or just someone out in the community who wants to do, do some work, focus on the work more. Don't necessarily focus on the title or the, <laughs> those things will come, you know. They, yeah. I was talking with a young person recently and he was like, ah, oh, I got a book, but you know, I want to write, but I got to think of what to call it first. You know, that's, so, so you know, that's kind of late in the process, you know, <laughs> get the, get the work done first. Don't worry about the title. Don't worry about the uh the the name of the book and the cool book name before they worry about filling the book up with uh, useful or meaningful information. Sure. Um, so uh, so don't worry about those things. But Blue Texas definitely is a is a, a great title and a a fitting title. And you mentioned earlier, Max, that you, you feel like, you know, people who may identify more on the blue side than on the uh, you know progressive side, more so than on the red conservative side, it, you know, there are larger numbers in Texas. We don't necessarily see that. People don't think about that with Texas politics, uh, you know, at least today. So, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, some ideas you had or some things that you found. How can we change that?
0: Two things. Well, I'd say, like, first, it's a national story. Right. What's happening in Texas always starts here and then it goes elsewhere in the right. country. Right. We we export. Terrible politicians, right? Sometimes the <laughs> expert politicians, but but you know more generally, like the trend, a lot of the trends that start here, and we're kind of at the middle sure. of the nation culturally. Um, and and Texas is a far more diverse place than most people looking at it from outside think, right? It's a it's yeah. a state that um, is is right on the cusp of of not having any majority group right. uh, if it's not already there, uh, and it you know it's in the cities are deep dark blue. People don't know that, right? Houston right. is oh, a blue yes. city. Dallas is even Dallas is a blue city, uh, Fort Worth. We're not quite there, but we're working on it. Um, you know, we're now, we're now, you know, the next battleground. And, and really, I think every once in a while, the democratic party sometimes gets a little excited about maybe we can turn Texas, but they, they haven't really committed to it. Um, but I would say that when that happens, it's going to have, you know, national repercussions. Definitely, The Republican party will really struggle to build an electoral majority if they don't get all these votes from, from us here. So, um, you know, I, I I I have some lessons in, in the epilogue about what I think needs to be done, but it, mm-hmm. it comes right out of the history. You know, that mm-hmm. I so basically, well, let me tell you about the book, and maybe we could come back. To oh yeah, there.
1: absolutely. Go right ahead.
0: So, so the book, you know, it's it, it begins in the nineteen thirties, and and that's a key moment when when that break happens in Texas. You know, Texas had been a Confederate state. Right. Uh, it, it cut Reconstruction short. Right. There was violence directed toward African Americans in politics mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, there was land dispossession. There was lynching. You know, ultimately, there was a bunch of voter disfranchisement laws when Jim Crow was created around the turn of the century. And so from, you know, the 1890s forward, the state had been dominated by Dixiecrats, by white Southern right. Democrats who were committed to white supremacy. And also it, this, the state had been dominated by its big business interests. And in the 1930s, that cracked that that, the you know, half century of power. Mm-hmm. And it was coming of the new deal that, that, that helped to change things and the hope it inspired. And the fact that it, it forced new ideas into state politics mm-hmm. and it was the labor movement on the ground. Uh, and, and it was, Texas was part of the the Southern labor upsurge. Right. Uh, and so the book begins by following a couple of idealistic young white labor activists from, uh, from North Carolina where mm-hmm. they met, um, ultimately to, to Texas, where they join um, a strike of 10,000 uh, Mexican-American women in the canner, uh, in the pecan shelling industry. Mm-hmm. And this is a strike, again, that we've heard of, that the historians would be familiar with in right. 1938, uh, and they, it's a, it, it becomes a mass movement, um, both, both the people involved and the people opposed to it, the police, the, the city fathers, the city machine, they all view it as a mass uprising, And and indeed, it does. And it destabilizes politics in San Antonio. Um, But what's often not reported is that that was linked up with uh, some really new and and creative organizing that was happening among African-Americans on the city's east side. Mm -hmm. uh, And also a new, you know, that that they built a coalition around a, a liberal white politician together. And so those ties first started being created in San Antonio and then they become kind of lasting there. So. I start there and then I pivot to Houston, and I'll talk about Houston because I know that's where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Houston, during World War II, there grew a massive civil rights movement, uh, and it's a movement that combined the struggle for racial justice with, with fights for economic justice, um, you know, what, what my friend and mentor Bob Corstadt has called civil rights unionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Houston was very much a prototype of that civil rights unionism. Uh, it wasn't any one big union. it was all, people involved in a lot of different unions. Uh, But African American workers flocked into, um, especially the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, but the whole labor movement, whenever given the opportunity. Houston, of course, was a bit of a boom town from from oil. Uh, It received a huge amount of federal defense spending during the war and and after. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so African American workers fought to get a place uh, in that industry and to become part of that wartime. Recovery from the depression, and right. so I focus. I tell the I tell the story through a number of kind of key characters, such a narrative story. And, and so the story that that drives us through much of the African American portion of the book is is Moses Leroy and his eventual wife, Mrs. Irma Leroy. Mm-hmm. And and so Mr. Leroy Moses, he was a worker at the Southern Pacific uh, there in Houston, originally in the Fifth Ward, um, and he uh, got a job there. You know, the only jobs available to black men were the most menial, dangerous, difficult and low paid jobs, mm-hmm. he wanted to get promoted out of that. Uh, and he couldn't. And so he eventually helped to organize an all black auxiliary of the railroad workers brotherhood. Uh, and he used that to, as a platform for broader activism. Mm-hmm. He became involved in the radical progressive party of, of 1948, mm-hmm. as did his wife. Uh, and they were involved in all kinds of on the ground civil rights organizing. So fighting at work and on the job for economic issues, and then fighting in the community too. So he, he links up with with other more familiar figures, and again Texas has this outsized national impact in this period. Right. NAACP grows exponentially under the leadership of Mrs. Lulu Madison White, and uh, and and Moses Leroy becomes an officer of the local chapter, and the chapter grows to become the second biggest in America wow. during during World War II. Uh, second only to Detroit, right, another industrial city. Mm-hmm. And uh, so essentially um, these trade unionists, black trade unionists, whether they're in AFL or CIO unions, most of the unions not terribly progressive, but they're fighting for justice within the unions and in the community through the NAACP right. and, th- and through third-party politics even sometimes. Um, so in uh, one of the things they do is they join the campaign to, to defeat the white primary, one of the methods that, that white – Dixiecrats used in Texas to keep black people out of politics was to require that only white people could participate in the Democratic primary. And of mm-hmm. course, in this period, the Democratic Party was the only show in town. You couldn't get elected dog catcher if you weren't a Democrat. So by barring African Americans from the white primary, they, they pulled them out of the political process. And furthermore, the Republican Party said, well, if the Democrats aren't going to go after them, we don't need to yeah, worry about
2: them. Yeah. Right?
0: Right. But the, the black Republicans got pushed out um, you know, from the party of Lincoln. And so Texas had been fighting that basically ever since the primary had been instituted, but it, it took off in Houston. Um, Richard Randolph Grovey, another, uh, activist with ties to the labor movement helped to push the case. Um, and the NAACP chapter took it on and, uh, eventually um, brought it to court. Uh, Mr. Leroy and other ordinary trade unionists, you know, stood on street corners and collected nickels and dimes to pay for the case. Um, they ultimately got the NAACP Legal Defense Fund involved, or what becomes the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, an attorney from Dallas, W. J. Durham, mm. uh, helps to lead the, the case along with Thurgood Marshall, and it goes all the way to Supreme Court. It's named after uh, a dentist from Houston, Lonnie Smith,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the case becomes Smith versus all right and it bans the white primary uh, in 1944 in the South, in Texas, and across the South. Wow. And so that 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 you know the chapter, the subtitle, of the chapter is black workers win the right to vote. <laughs> and, you know, that's a story we don't usually tell. No. But it was a grassroots movement from the bottom up. They won the right to vote, and they sought to exercise it. Uh, and they were threatened with violence and, and intimidation um, and and so forth. The other thing that that chapter of the NAACP produced was another sweeping Supreme Court case. There was a postal worker in Houston whose name was Heman
2: Sweat. hmm
0: and uh, his dad had organized the All Black Union of Postal Employees, the National Association of, sorry, National Alliance of Postal Employees.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he was part of the original group. And it was uh, uh, this, you know, Heman Sweat applied for a promotion at the post office. He wasn't given it because he was African-American and um, ultimately decided to go to law school and applied to the University of Texas and was rejected because he was black. And so this same group of NAACP and union folks come together and rally behind him. And they take that case to the Supreme Court. And, of course, that ends up desegregating higher education right. in 1950. And, and it's a key precedent for the Brown decision. So, I'm, you know, in some ways, I'm telling that familiar story, but in new ways. Right. The grassroots right. working class movement that's behind it. Um, and and then the class politics, then, that are part of that story.
2: Right. Right. That
0: is really coming from from the bottom up. Um you know, moving forward in the book, the, the the next chapter, also chapter three, still deals with primarily with Houston, mm-hmm. uh, and it shows the effects of the Cold War, and and that was a key question I was asking uh, in working on the book. You know, mm-hmm. I, I with Bob Horstad, I uh, I was in grad school when Jacqueline Hall's idea of the long civil rights movement came mm-hmm. out,
2: mm-hmm. right,
0: uh, and I wondered, well, what happens after the Cold War starts? Where do where do the activists go, right? Um, and what I, what I saw in Houston was, um. The NAACP was, you know, first greatly diminished and later banned, right, and nearly destroyed. Mrs. White was run out of politics. Uh, But some of the grassroots people, like the Leroy's, survived. They survived the Cold War narrowing of American politics, and they redirected their energies into into new channels. So they became part of a cross-class, all-black alliance called the Harris County Council of Organizations. And, uh, and they helped to infuse it with those same earlier working-class politics that, that tied the economic justice struggle together with the racial justice struggle. Okay. Uh, and so they, they brought those politics forward into the 50s. Um, I also show in that chapter how Houston um, was the base for the white liberal democratic movement as it emerges, um, but you know, the Democratic Party, as I mentioned, splits between the, the, the Dixiecrats that had long controlled it and white liberals who are committed to the New Deal and who want to bring right. the deal to Texas—they call themselves loyalists or loyal Democrats or liberals, liberal Democrats, because they're loyal to the national party. Um, but Houston becomes the incubator of what they call the liberal movement, uh, and this is white folks rallying behind Ralph Yarborough to get him elected. First, you know, they try to get him elected governor three times. They finally do get, elected, get him elected to the United States Senate, and he becomes the champion of their cause mm-hmm. and ultimately a great long-term liberal senator from Texas that people may not know about now when they think about how red the state is <laughs> right?
2: but
0: produced Ralph Yarborough from Texas uh, and he was a great champion later in his career for civil rights and for environmental justice and, and and other causes um and even even came out against the Vietnam war um you know later in his career so I tell the grassroots story behind the election of Ralph Yarborough um and I and I follow, you know, the, the the difficulty of that. Right. They tried to reach out and, and attract black votes. Right. Uh, they they didn't really view their the the African-Americans as equal partners. Mm. Uh, the relationship was dishonest in both directions. Uh, and so that it, it takes many years of, of experimentation. And so I probably should have said this earlier on. Right. But one of the big arguments of the book is that we can't think about black brown relations as as being about conflict or as being about cooperation, you know, as like these immutable things throughout history. Right. Both of those occur sometimes. Right. But what I'm really interested in is in the middle, right? Uh, the coalition building, the process, um, or as W.J. Durham, the, the activist, an attorney from Dallas called it coalitioning, right? It's, it's a process. <laughs> it's a, it's a gerund. And, um, and so the alliances in my book that we see, they, people come together and then they fall apart and they fight with each other. But the amazing part is that after those moments of conflict, somehow they they agree to get together in a room again and, and start finding ways to work together. And over several decades, that becomes tighter and tighter and tighter, and they're able to build a coalition from these separate starting points. Um, and so, you know, I in, in that same chapter, I show a little bit about early Mexican-American activism in Houston. Mm-hmm. And then I turn back to San Antonio where we see uh, burgeoning civil rights struggles among both African Americans and Mexican Americans in in the 1950s.
2: Okay, uh,
0: All right. it's actually an alliance that's forged there between an African American activist, again, who went way back to the 30s, who was involved in the National Negro Congress, a radical organization, who was involved in the Pecan Sheller Strike. You know, in 1948, he for- his name is G. J. Sutton. Mm-hmm. He forms an alliance with an Af- uh, with, I'm sorry, with a Mexican American attorney and civil rights activist named Gus García. And they both get elected to local school boards in 1948. Uh, It's another sort of major revolution, and it it rattles the the political establishment in San Antonio such that it has to be reformulated, and and we see the the rise of uh, of a new good government league designed to control local politics.
2: Mm. Um,
0: But then, you know, these same guys are out in the community doing the grassroots organizing as well. And G. J. Sutton build, helps to build a movement on the east side of San Antonio, uh, along with Reverend Claude Black, the, the preacher at, at First Baptist Church there, uh, First Zion A. M. Not First Zion Baptist is ultimately his name. Uh, sorry, I'm butchering it. Zion First Baptist, uh, Mount Zion. <laughs> In any event, Reverend Claude Black, who was an amazing figure, I was really lucky to have an opportunity to meet him and interview him before he wow, passed away. Wow, um, he and, and G.J. Sutton, who was an undertaker by trade, uh, and a, a photographer and publisher named Eugene Coleman, who I also got to interview, mm-hmm. the, them formed what I call the East Side Trio in San Antonio. And they, uh, they built a civil rights movement there um, where they, again, fought for you know, desegregation or for equal resources, depending on the exact moment. Um, but they also fought for economic issues. They fought for better infrastructure in the neighborhood. They they fought for jobs. Um, they fought, and above all, they fought for real political power.
2: Right.
0: So, so you know, I would say that's another big sort of intervention in the book. One is to follow people across this whole long civil rights movement, and mm-hmm. you can see the change and there's continuity. But another is to say, even in the 1950s, that economic agenda was front and center. You know, mm-hmm. people were not participating in these demonstrations. They were not sitting in at lunch counters just to eat a hamburger. Right, they, they it was also always about jobs. It was also always about um broader economic issues, and it was also always about political power, mm-hmm. about realizing realizing the promise of the right to vote, right? Of organizing independent black political power uh that was not gonna be mediated by by intermediaries, mm-hmm. by, by African American diplomats who were close to the city fathers. Um And so that's what G.J. Sutton and the rest of those guys were trying to build in in San Antonio. It's what Moses Leroy and the folks in the Harris County Council of Organizations were trying to build in Houston. Mm -hmm. It's what W.J. Durham and the people in the First the Progressive Voters League and then also the the Texas Council of Voters, it's what they were trying to build in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Different local groups trying to get independent political power and economic justice in addition to integration access and and equal treatment. And those things were all, you know, Woven up together.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's some sorry, I've
0: been talking for a while. Jump on in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh no no, hey Max, you know your book much better than I do, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that I, I do. Now that was a great explanation and, and and you know and it really shows people you know the 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 depth of the research that you did for this book, Max. It's outstanding and excellent. You talked to some folk and you introduced some people and. You know, maybe local people may know some of those names, but on a statewide or a national level, you know, you're really introducing some people there. And, you know, it's great work. And the book is Blue Texas, the making of multiracial, the making of a multiracial democratic coalition in the civil rights era. And we're here with associate professor of history, Max Krocmaul at Texas Christian University. Right. The Horn horn frogs. Yep. When I was a undergraduate they used to be known as the horny toads, but they, yeah,
0: well that's all the same thing, right? Yeah, um, same. And it's actually a lizard, so what do you what do you know? Yeah. Um So so the interesting part of that story is the last piece, the making of the coalition, right? Yeah, uh, so so each of these different groups were organizing their bases. All right. In uh, Antonio there was also on the west and south sides a uh, Mexican Americans organizing for independent political power and civil rights under the leadership of uh, an attorney who becomes a county commissioner named Albert Pena. Okay. And Albert Pena and G.J. Sutton become very close friends. They start working together, black and brown, and uh, they start showing up for each other's rallies. They start meeting with each other more often. They show up in each other's newspapers. Uh, Eventually, uh, Pena even writes a column for, for the kind of underground radical black paper in San Antonio, Uh the news. And, um, and, and so they, what, what the, the cool part of the story is, you know, in 1960, these same old school activists from the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. they did the sit-in movement. They helped to direct the, the sit-in movement. They helped to assist the young people in both San Antonio and in Houston. In San Antonio, Mexican-Americans joined the sit-in, the sit-in movement, wow. and that's, that's detailed in the book. Um, both groups, both African-Americans and Mexican-Americans, rally behind the campaign of John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. and they used that campaign to advance their own struggles. Uh, and and they ultimately succeed in carrying Texas narrowly for Kennedy uh, and his running mate Lyndon Johnson in 1960. But but you know each group has these different ideas, and so African Americans are interested in, 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 in civil rights, mm. in politics, in economics. But what turns out to be their secret weapon in the struggle is the, the building of a multiracial coalition. Right. That's how they get over. That's how they defeat Jim Crow, and and they do it by building these interracial alliances. Often at the same time that they're experiencing intense intra-racial conflict
2: mm-hmm.
0: with among African Americans, with other African Americans, with other Mexican Americans. So to give you an example, you know when G. J. Sutton and those guys got started in San Antonio, mm-hmm. they were trying to expose some issues with housing, with slums, uh, and with slum lords, and they were trying to get San Antonio to um, to join the the to, to use federal housing act federal housing money to build um, you know better quality housing for African-Americans and they mm-hmm. were hiding this back. So this photographer Eugene Coleman goes out and he takes all these pictures and he wants to try to expose what the slums look like and, and mm-hmm. you know shame the city into doing the right thing Right. and the leading American paper in the city the register won't publish them. See, the register is owned by uh, uh, Valmo Bellinger who was a second-generation part of, uh, of the city machine. He, uh-huh. he led the American wing, right? And he was a close ally of the city government and of more conservative Mexican-Americans. So there was a coalition of conservatives, uh, and then there's this coalition growing among civil rights activists and, and li- people who are committed to liberal politics and liberal ideas. Um, and so when once they figure that out, they, they, they start realizing that they can lean on this coalition to build more power for themselves, right? To, to, to get over on their social betters, the so-called race leaders, right? The, the more militant, the more radical activists, the, the working class activists, the people who want freedom now, not sometime in the future,
2: mm-hmm.
0: the who want economic justice, the people who want liberal politics, they realize that by working across the color line, they, they can get past those more conservative members of their own race who've long stood in the way of, of more substantive progress, right? Mm. who pass Patronage, maybe we've had a different strategy from the from the, the you know for the more radical people they stood in the way. So anyway, I follow that process and I show how they came together. The other wing of this coalition was organized labor, which was predominantly white, and it, I, I follow that process about how the predominantly white labor movement um, keeps getting its own butt kicked by the big <laughs> players in Texas, and they keep losing in elections. And so over time, they start to realize that they need to do something in their own self interest. And that means reaching out to African Americans. It means reaching out to Mexican Americans. It means um, deepening ties with white liberals, you know, who were, they called them independent liberals, Mm -hmm. merchants, bankers, lawyers, those kinds of people. Okay. The people committed to the New Deal, but outside of the labor movement. Um, And so labor realized it was in their own self interest to care about civil rights. And over time, under the leadership of a man, another guy from San Antonio, Hank Brown. Hank Brown had worked with G.J. Sutton. He'd worked with Albert Pena. They built this little experimental coalition in San Antonio. And when that worked, they ultimately took it to a statewide level, mm. something that they called simply the Democratic Coalition. <laughs> uh, and it failed several times. <laughs> and I show in the book how each time they learned from that experience, mm-hmm. And ultimately, by the mid 1960s, they come together again and they build a deliberately democratic coalition in which each of those four groups has equal representation and an equal voice. Um, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans, because of the work they had been doing in the sit-ins and in other struggles, were able to demand and win an an equal seat at the table instead of being junior partners as they had been previously. And um, and together they they. They made civil rights their top priority in 1963, um, such that the organizers, the leaders of labor of the Texas AFL-CIO came out in 1963 and said and, and demanded that the governor of Texas call a special session of the legislature to pass civil rights laws. Wow. That's how far they came. Right. And they still had a lot of racism in their ranks, but that the leadership had come to see that they needed to adopt civil rights as their own cause if they wanted to if they wanted to win. Mm-hmm. So all these groups kind of reached that realization in their own self-interest. They needed to build coalitions with other people. They needed to stand in solidarity with other people. And it culminates in later that summer, August 28, 1963, the same day as the March on Washington,
2: mm-hmm.
0: the March on Austin. And there's about 1,000 people there, most of them African-American, but there are also significant numbers of Mexican-Americans and white folks. And they they all come together to demand civil rights and to demand uh, political change. And W.J. Durham from Dallas, uh, the attorney who you know, had been involved from the very beginning. Right. Very active. He's one of the four co-chairs of the Democratic coalition. He leads the African-American wing. And he got up and he said, the day is over when the governor can separate Negroes, except those few who are very conservative and have gotten super rich. Then he said, they'll never separate the Latin American and Negroes again in politics. They'll never separate independent white man and Negro again. They'll never separate labor and the Negro again. We're going to march on the streets, pray on the streets, sit in the streets, walk on the streets. We're going to fight at the ballot box and in the courts. And I believe that's the last message, message I've got for my governor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good message. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so I'll just wrap up by saying from there, they actually walk the walk. They don't actually throw the governor out. For a variety of reasons, but they do launch massive voter registration and education and mobilization drives. Uh, they go deep into every inner city in Texas. They go far into the countryside and they succeed in completely transforming state politics. They break open the doors of the Democratic Party and ultimately take it over, which is why it looks like it does now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They, they redraw the map of, of metropolitan politics to make the cities deep dark blue like they are now. Mm hmm. They train a bunch, a new generation of activists uh, that come out of this, including, you know, one of their coordinators on the ground in Houston was a woman named Barbara Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and they uh, and, and they succeed in tearing down the worst of Jim Crow and also of, of what we call Juan Crow, uh, you know, facing Mexican-Americans. Wow. Um, and and so it's a story of a lot accomplished, um, but also of of a lot left undone. Uh, they hit a wall, right? And ultimately the coalition falls apart. Um, and so I say that they leave work for us to do uh, and also a blueprint for
1: how to do it. So Texas can be blue again. Is that what you're telling me, Max? <laughs>
0: yeah, that's something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. So let, let me add one thing on the lessons and we can mm-hmm. wrap up. I, you know, in my mind, what we see is that the more militant, the more liberal, the more committed to integration, um the more committed to disruptive tactics
2: mm-hmm. that this
0: coalition grew, the deeper it got, the more powerful it became. Mm. That's a really important lesson for politicians today, for democratic politicians especially, and for other progressives, right? So often politicians run toward the center. Right. Think,
2: you
0: know, we need to we need to appeal to that suburban housewife or whatever it might be. But I think what this shows us is that if you instead organize the many bases that are there, You build a coalition of them and you stand for real principles uh, and you're willing to use unconventional tactics that that can that that can motivate people. You have you have to. And and you got to do the on the ground organizing, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if we follow their lead, uh, you know, we really can turn Texas blue. Mm -hmm.
1: So I have to ask you the obvious question, Max. Is -hmm. politics in your future?
0: Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) You know, I, I'm I'm my I'm hopeful that, as I said, that this book will influence people who are doing politics, and mm-hmm. I'm happy to help however I can. But I am not running for anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you 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 what, what did uh, Johnson say? Uh, if nominated, you he, you will not serve, or, or
0: whatever. I don't know. I might be able to be talked into it.
1: Oh, okay. i say
0: this. I I uh, you know I I I think that the important work that has to happen is is the the grassroots work the work of leadership development. Right. You know, one of the things that the other big takeaway is that way too often we think of politics, electoral politics as something that happens you know, during election years and it's very narrow and usually it's focused on one candidate winning and that's it. Right. Right. But what the coalition did in the sixties was they connected high politics and, and that part of the work with the everyday work of civil rights organizing. Oh, right. right. So, You know, what politicians need to do now is is say that the engine for change is not going to just be not just registering voters, not just turning out voters, although those those matter. Right. But but they really have to engage with the key social movements of of our time. And that means black lives matter. right? It means, you know, serious criminal justice reform. It means engaging with the struggle for immigrant rights and the fight against SB4 and, and, and for dignity for immigrants. It means fighting for LGBT people and, and for their rights as as workers and other things. And, and so labor and Democrats all need to be connecting with those social movements every day uh, instead of just, you know, on Election Day.
1: Yeah. Right. During the election cycle and when the, the political <laughs> season. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't really dispute that because, I mean, you, you know, we often see it every time there's a big election. You know these I many of these issues come up, and then you don't hear about them again for two years or three years until the the next election cycle yeah you're you're right on with that, Max, and again, you did great work here you did you know very a very good history of these things. You make the connections if you're from San Antonio or Houston or Dallas, you know you definitely want to pick up Max's book and learn a little bit about the the history of the uh the social struggles and, and civil rights movements in, in your area so, Max, I I could sit here and, and listen to you talk about all this stuff all day long, man, because it's uh, exciting and you know your stuff. But I know you've got to uh, you teach a summer school this year yeah. <laughs> this summer, and I know you've got to, uh, uh, you know, get get back to work. But thank you so much for your time here. telling us about your book, Max. And the book, again, is Blue Texas, the making of a multiracial democratic coalition in the civil rights era. And it's published by the University of North Carolina Press. You know, it's, if you uh click through on our new books network page, the new books and African American studies channel. You can click through and pick it up right on, on Amazon or you can go to uh, his publisher's website there and, and pick up the book there. And Max, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, what are some ways they can do so?
0: Uh, the easiest way, cause my name's hard to spell. The easiest way is <laughs> go to my website and that's professormax.org. All right. And at professormax.org you can see a link to the book. Um, You can connect to the other projects I'm working on. Uh, And then the other thing to check out would just be the the Civil Rights and Black and Brown Oral History Project. Okay. Uh, uh, And that website, again, is CRBB, like Civil Rights, Black and Brown, dot TCU dot edu. All
1: right. Awesome. And if they forget all that, they could just do uh, Civil Rights, Oral History, Black and Brown, Google search of TCU, and they'll find it, I'm sure, right?
0: Yep. And we got a Facebook page, and yeah, we're easy to find.
1: All right. That, that that sounds good to me. Um, thank you so much for your time. Actually, before we go, I, I did want to give you the opportunity, uh, in addition to those things you to share with us, if there's some other uh, projects that you're working on or things that you want to share with the audience.
0: Oh, sure. So, um, well, I'm working on two collaborative projects. The big one is Civil Rights, Black and Brown.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Over the last, basically, we we spent the last two summers doing interviews mm-hmm. prior to this year. Uh, we went all over Texas from El Paso to Nacogdoches, to Amarillo, to Dallin, mm. and all the big cities. We were in Houston for a while. Uh, we had a couple of students working with us from UH, graduate students Right, UH. And, and so we did over 500 new interviews with uh, African-American and Mexican-American, white, but mostly black and brown civil rights activists. And we thought okay. of civil rights very broadly. So it could be you know, people who were building, say, uh, one of them was like a Chicana feminist uh, healthcare clinic, right? Could mm-hmm. be people who are fighting for political power, or economic issues, uh, or poverty warriors, or artists, or uh, you know, all sorts of different things that.
1: that okay, act,
0: awesome. Community activism broadly, right? Uh, and and so that's what we think of civil rights is all that. So we're working now on a book with everybody who's been working on the project, all contributing to this collaborative volume, um, and so we'll see what comes from that. <laughs> but it's everyone's at work on their chunks of it, and um, and I get to help edit it and turn it into something that, that reads like a book. Um, and then So th- that's really exciting, and I, I think we'll, hopefully we're going to get a podcast together from the project, too.
1: Awesome, yeah.
0: Um, and then I'm working on another big collaboration, and I don't know where it's going, but it, it, focuses, on, <laughs> um, it focuses on the Yukapawa, one of the unions in the book. And this ah, okay. A radical, multiracial, multiethnic union often led by women uh, in the 1930s and 40s, and it was all over America, and the Puchelers mm-hmm. were part of it. Um, there were also outposts in Houston and other places. Um, and so we're trying to reconstruct a national story of that union, uh, which is hard to do because it was red baited out of existence all right, and okay. were destroyed. So we're, we're, we're all getting together and we're trying to figure out how to put the story back together.
1: Well, I would love to get you back on the show for either one of those, Max. <laughs> Well, both those sound Both of those sound great. and Maybe you can get some of your students, you know, when you get that, um, the oral history piece. Yeah. You can you know, we can interview them all. Give them a chance to get some exposure, get on the air, too. That'd be great. Yeah. So, yeah, I would love to get you back on for that. And again, one more time before we go, um, this, you know, I had a great time talking with the author here, Max Crockmall, And the book is Blue Texas, The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era. And the book is published by the University of North Carolina Press, and of course Max himself is an associate professor of history at Texas Christian University in the Fort Worth area. Right. Right. So thank you so much, Max, for taking some time with us. Don't give any Fs or any bad grades <laughs> to these stu these students. Give them all A's. Right. We all you know we all want them to have A's on the New Books Network. Yep, okay. There you go. Yeah, don't make any promises there, but we'll, we'll pretend if they're listening that that we have something to do with them getting an A in your summer class. <laughs> All right. So we'll see you next time, Max, when you uh, uh, get one of those other books ready to be interviewed by us. But before we go here, please tell my audience goodbye.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and thanks to everybody for listening. I appreciate it. And hit me up.
1: <laughs> hit them up there at Texas Christian or on Facebook or on his website. And again, this is Dr. Max Crockmall, Blue Texas, the making of a multiracial democratic coalition in the civil rights era. Who am I? I'm your host, James Stansel, the New Books and African American Studies channel of the New Books Network. Peace and love, and we'll find you and hear from you and see you next time. Take care. God bless. All right. We're back on the African-American studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. And uh, again, uh, thank you to Max Crockmall for taking the time uh, during your summer teaching schedule to uh, uh, have an interview with us on the podcast. And the book again is Blue Texas, The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era, published by UNC Press. And Max has an oral history project that he's working on up there at TCU. in Fort Fort Worth. He'd love to hear from you. Definitely drop him a line. Go to his website, Professor Max, or uh, to his oral history project website. Take care, and we'll see you next time on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. Peace and love.